Welcome back to Shiwanano Radio. I'm your guest host, Dr. Simon Fitzgerald of Knife at the Gunfight. Uh, and we have a great show for you today, an interview with Israeli mass- mathematician and fellow uh, University of Maryland Terrapin, Kobe Snitz. So even though Gorb's not here, let's get it. Saw a picture on the internet, you were rising like a flame. Captured your pride and determination When you broke through the police lines And you made it to the square And there's something that connects us You can smell it in the Alexandros, the banks began to burn. And they patrolled the streets, but you were there at every turn. And the world will not soon forget what happened there. And there's something that connects us, you can smell it in the air. of a friend Since you'd been murdered in jail but you'd come back again Since you'd stared into the soldiers eyes and they didn't seem to care And there's something that connects us You can smell it in the From the hoses poured like rain At the barricades of tax and vomit was everywhere And there's something that connects us You can smell it in the Like it was 1965 And your so-called leaders flew to town to keep you in line But you broke the curfew openly and your hands were in the air And there's something that connects us You can smell it in the air 
something that connects us. Welcome back to Knife at the Gunfight, uh, guest hosting for Shai Wanena Radio. I'm here with Kobe Snitz from Israel. Uh, Kobe, how you doing? I'm doing well. How are you? Good, good. And uh, just to let everybody know, I've known Kobe since back uh, my days at University of Maryland uh, when I met Zane also. And Kobe is a, an Israeli mathematician uh, who has a lot of experience with solidarity work uh, in the Holy Land. So, uh, Kobe, if, is that a fair description? Uh, and uh, give us just a little bit more. Who are you and where are you from? Yeah, that's that's right. And and I, I met you and, and Zane and, and and others uh, at uh, in College Park uh, around 2001, two, three, uh, organizing against the war then and sanctions on Iraq. And uh, I really got my political education there, and and just kept going from uh, from then on when I moved back to Israel. And so, where are you from originally? I was born in Israel, and uh, I was in the U.S. for for school. Uh, where I learned not just the math, but uh, as I said, my political education in Maryland and in, in D.C. and the, the activist scene, um, anti-globalization um, movements, uh, 2001, and then uh, anti-war work, as I said. And so tell me about that process of them moving back to Israel. Um, what was that like? What was your uh, sort of solidarity work there? It was really the first uh, political work I did. Uh, I left when I was younger and not that politicized. Uh, when I came back, I was already um, politicized. I had some experience from Maryland and D.C. and, and some <clears throat> period when I lived in Canada. And uh, I was uh, keen to get involved in, in what was going on here. And the, the thing that seemed the most relevant and the most needed was uh, a, a group that had different rotating names at the time, but one of the names that stuck was the Anarchists Against the Wall. Uh, they were focused on, on action on the ground in the West Bank with Palestinians, which was uh, unique in, in a number of ways, and that, that seemed like the, the right thing for me to do. So uh, were you part of the formation of that group, or was that something that you found active and joined? When I showed up, there was already a group of, of people. Uh, they started... Um, Around I think late 2002, there was a protest camp in a place called Masha. That was really a definitive moment. A lot of people came out for that and um, got their their world turned upside down. Uh, I came after that when the work was shifting to demonstrations in the villages uh, around the West Bank. Um, the group existed, but. Um, is an anarchist group. It was pretty pretty loose in its structure, and uh, people were in very much interested in, in in the structure of a group. And most of the focus, I think, rightly so, most of the focus was on the on on the work on the ground, joining the demonstrations, and and the the structure was just the minimal amount that you needed to to make that possible. Right, and I you you said the audio kind of cut off, but that the group called itself Anarchists Against the Wall. Right. And I remember talking to you at that time. I thought there were some other good names, something like there Israelis was, against apartheid or Jews against ghettos, something the, like that. Jews against ghettos, yes. Um, the names were rotating. They would pick them, pick a different name for every action. And then the day that they picked that name, um, someone got shot. Uh, a guy, one of the guys, actually, uh, a recent Army veteran who came out for his first action, 
was shot uh, by the army and with two live bullets in both his legs, nearly bled to death on the, on, on the way to the hospital. Uh, that was uh, really the first time that the army shot uh, at Israelis, at Israeli Jews, I should say, they shoot uh, Israeli Palestinians all the time. Um, and uh, that was that generated a lot of attention. And then the name that was picked for that day stuck. It was a December twenty sixth, two thousand and three. And so that was work in the town of Belin. Is that right? No, so that was before Belin. That was that was still Masha, uh, where the original protest camp uh, started. Afterwards, other villages started. Uh, to demonstrate as the construction of the wall approached their village. Uh, Bilin was one of the most prominent ones. Um, they they kept it up, they keep it up to this day. Uh, it's uh, it's going on 15 years uh, of weekly demonstrations, sometimes more, sometimes more than once a week. And uh, Bilin, uh, Mascha, Budus, Dirbalut, uh, Nabi Saleh, Neelin, Kufa Kadum, um, there's countless others. Um, it's been at, a, at some point, it never became a, the mass movement that we were hoping for, but it was uh, widespread enough that um, it did stick as a thing that people had to accept that such a thing happens. And it did uh, put some pressure on the army, in some cases, enough pressure to win back some land. Uh, Budus is a good example where the demonstrations uh, are enough, were enough to win back some of their land. Uh, they didn't go to court for it. Court is a, a complex and, and uh, involves a compromise that some Palestinians don't necessarily want to make. Uh, in other cases, like Bilin, uh, the court decided to return some of their land. They realized that the court is a compromise, but in that case, they, they, they chose to use it. Um, but it, as a, it wasn't the, the mass movement that the first intifada was, but it was a thing, and uh, I think it had an impact on the resistance in the West Bank. But also, uh, maybe more more clearly on on the shape of of uh, the radical left in in Israel. That before that, before that, even in the, in the more radical parts of the left. The idea of working with Palestinians seemed uh, hard to imagine, and, and after this work, um, it seems like the natural thing for people to do. And the work in Berlin, perhaps, I, I think there was a movie, maybe it was Five Broken Cameras, um, which captured uh, in a very personal way a lot of the work from the Palestinian point of view. Um, yeah. So maybe that's why that was, uh, at least by me, more well-remembered. Um, but. Can you talk about how those relationships formed and, you know, are those relationships still ongoing and, and what's the result of, of that work on a personal and community level? Yeah, the, the relationships formed and I think in the best possible way, which is in, in joint struggle. And not to be ultra-leftist about it, but I think it's important to make the distinction between a relationship that's forged in struggle versus a relationship that's that's created for the sake of a relationship. I think the latter could be a little problematic because if we think that the point is to drink tea together, it implies that the problem is that there is a 
you know, misunderstanding or some cultural differences. And if we can only drink tea together, we, we'd work out the cultural differences and, and that would be it. Uh, that is a distortion of reality. And it's, it, it's, it might sound ultra leftist to be against people drinking tea together, but if they're drinking tea together and the premise is that that is the only problem of cultural differences, it, it, that distortion is, is a problem. And uh, the, the, the reality is that there is a, uh, there's a system of oppression that denies Palestinians their, their basic rights and, and systematically destroys their, their livelihoods and, and their communities. And, and to realize that, to really realize it, is to resist it. And that is a meaningful uh, relationship. And, and those, those last, even when they, the struggle is not the same as it was a couple of years ago, even if there's burnout, even if people are in jail or people have moved on in their lives. Uh, th- that's the sort of, of connection that, that stays with you. Uh, you know, I, I was going to ask, what do you think are the value and the accomplishments of the work that was done uh, against the wall? And you mentioned at least one community was able to win back some land and the perception of what was going on changed yeah. and also the perception of what was possible in terms of uh, solidarity work with Palestinians. Do you have anything more you wanted to add to that? Yeah, I think so. A couple of villages won by back uh, their land. I think we did change uh, to some Palestinians. I mean, they, Palestinians don't need us to tell them about popular struggle. They are uh, incredibly politicized and incredibly experienced, all of them, in, in popular struggle. The, the first Intifada being the, the most. Uh, impressive example of it. Um, what we did uh, suggest is that there are some people who will come and, 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 and join them. We can't promise them a mass movement of Israelis. I wish we could. But uh, there is some solidarity work, and, and if you are open to it, we could come and maybe we could be useful. Um, also, I think uh, what was perhaps uh, more important is that in the international activists that came, and in the, in the Israelis also, uh, there were direct links between Palestinian activists in the villages and uh, the civil society and, and, and the left uh, outside. Um, and that's, that's changed. Uh, the uh, internet and, and communication technology makes that possible also, but it's also a political shift that it used to be that Palestinian movements and Palestinian politics in general, would have to be mediated through some Israeli intermediaries or, uh, you know, at the worst case, or slightly better is uh, Palestinian intellectuals. Now, a direct connection between the villages and the international movement, I think, is, is something very strong and also something that, that um, makes the connections of the Solidarity Movement and the, in, in the BDS movement a lot more immediate than um, they would have been if it was a connection through Palestinian intellectuals in the cities or, or even, uh, you know, in a worst case, through Israelis, which is really uh, politically problematic. Um, and I'm, I'm happy to say that that situation is, is behind us. The Palestinian popular movement doesn't need Israelis anymore to contact the world. That's, that's, that's a significant shift and, um, and uh, it's something we can point to. And, you know, I always found this work very compelling. I mean, obviously, as an outsider, 
um, because uh, if uh, you know if we don't support and create nonviolent or at least unarmed uh, ways of struggling uh, for progress, then that kind of dooms us to a future of of you know of violence. That being said, there was a lot of violence directed at these protests. You mentioned that yeah. uh, one Israeli at least was uh, shot and almost killed. Do you want to talk yeah. about other violence that uh, that this movement faced? Well, people were killed. Um, kind of, uh, Palestinians were killed in this, those demonstrations. I mean, although um, even though we marched with them, the the army has uh, I mean, they have snipers and they, they they do still make the distinction. And they the worst of the violence is is, is directed at Palestinians and. Um, um, Dozens of Palestinians have died in in these marches, unarmed, uh, popular resistance. Um, I can't count the number of people who've gone to jail or have been injured. Practically every Palestinian family has someone who's gone to jail. Uh, practically every Palestinian family, especially in the villages, would have someone who's 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 died or been injured in in struggle. It's it's really something that involves the entire population. And for the Israeli activists, it's, it's, uh, there, there is a, there is a, a prize. Israelis have been injured, but, and some of them have, have done some jail time, but the, the amount of jail and, in, and injuries is, is really negligible compared to, you know, Palestinian teenagers who could go away for a year on, on the testimony of one, one soldier, and there's really nothing you can do in military court. I, I tell the story about one of our lawyers who acquitted someone in military court, and uh, the translator didn't know the word for acquittal. The military translator who translates the, the uh, proceedings didn't know the word for acquittal. And um, um, th- that, that's, that's the shape of the struggle that's been going on for the part that I've been involved in since I went back for 15 years now. And so what's changed in Israel and Palestine in the last 15 years or, or in this work? Well, for Palestinians, it's, it's a continued process of um, moving people off of their land, concentrating them in, in smaller um, smaller um, areas. It's, it's a plan that's been declared all the way back in the 70s by the Labor Party. Uh, it's called the Alone Plan of uh, this, this supposed uh, more... Uh, peaceful labor labor government soon after the occupation of the West Bank uh, came up with a plan which would in, include concentrating the Palestinians in the West Bank into um, small as small as possible areas and con- controlling the rest of the area, very much like uh, the, the Bantustans in, in South Africa. And sometimes they even refer to the plan in, by, in these terms. Um, as, as we speak, there is uh, an entire uh, village uh, called Khan el not far from Jerusalem, that's uh, at risk of being uh, demolished and the people in the village uh, driven out. And there's uh, at least uh, 12 other communities in the area uh, under, a certain, uh, under a similar threat. It, it, this is an ongoing, constant um, policy that the, the army is, the army and Israeli politics has, has been dedicated to since since the occupation of the West Bank and before that, um, since the formation of the state, and even before that. And it's it's 
it's not even restricted to Palestinians who are not citizens in, in the occupied territories. The same policy applies to uh, Palestinian citizens of Israel. Nominally, they have the same rights and what people refer to as a democracy, but uh, a similar situation exists for citizens of Israel, nominally in, living in democracy, in Um al-Khiran, a village in, in the Negev, the people there have settled there after they're displaced from the original uh, land shortly after the formation of the state, as if that wasn't enough. They're, they're about to be displaced again uh, to make room for a Jewish-only settlement to, to be constructed on the, on the side of their village. There's no shortage of, shortage of land. This is in, in the desert. It's, it's still sparsely populated. But the government policy is that they, they, they want to drive the, those Palestinians or Bedouins, drive them into uh, towns. Um, you, you can imagine these are the, the, the poorest towns uh, in Israel. Every single town where Bedouins live in, 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 the, in the Negev is ranked in the lowest socioeconomic, uh, lowest socioeconomic uh, measures in, in, in Israel. That's where they want to drive them. Um, there's no option for them to keep their their, their way of life ag- with agri- agricultural way of life uh, herding sheep and goats um, and there's not an e- even an option they were willing to they're very pragmatic they, were, they said okay you're going to build this settlement fine but why don't you let us live there it, we'll be neighbors to the to the settlers who want to settle on our land that's not acceptable they they insist on building a neighborhood on on top of where they they live and and displacing them to a, a, a ghetto, a, 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 you know, a slum. And the, when they did it, this is not done by you know by persuasion. People are not um, easily persuaded to do that. Uh, the, when that happened a year and a half ago, uh, two people were killed. They one teacher from the village was shot by by police as they were approaching his house. He lost control of his his um his truck and um hit hit um a cop the cop died also and to this day the minister of uh, police insists that the the people who the the, the teacher the village from the village who, who was shot by the by the police he insists he's a terrorist and the evidence for that is that they found newspapers in his house that had stories about um isis and um even though the the Central Security Service um, concluded that there's no evidence that the guy was anything but uh, just a guy who was going to have his house destroyed. Um, the, the, the chief of police and police and the minister of police insist insist on this. And this guy was, you know, from a village that has been displaced once and is about to be displaced again. And he's really he not only killed once, but in a sense, killed a number of times. He was killed once when the, the cops shot him, and then another time when the medics who could have saved him, um, the, the autopsy revealed that he was, you know, he was shot in the chest. He, he, he was bleeding into his lungs, and there was time to save him if, if they cared to do it. And the medic just walked away and uh, let him bleed to death and wouldn't let the activists who were there to see his situation. Uh, if we uh, happened to be there, if, if we saw the guy, we could have um, 
uh, called an, you know, another ambulance or something. We just assumed that he was dead from the first shot, but he was alive for another 20 minutes. He could have been saved. And if that's not enough, he's, he's, his character is assassinated by the minister of police who calls him a terrorist with no evidence. That's the sort of reality that exists for nominal citizens of the state. And and really, I think that the distinction between citizens and non-citizens when they're Palestinians um, and occupied territories and what's considered the territory of Israel is really uh, misleading. The situation should be seen for what it is. Israeli control over the entire area, including including the Gaza Strip. Israel controls uh, access to and from the Gaza Strip. Therefore, it controls the Gaza Strip. And it's responsible for the Gaza Strip and for the humanitarian situation that, that exists there. That's the sort of situation that the South Africans um, tried to create with less success than Israel. The South Africans would have people believe that apartheid policies are not really a discrimination. It's just people, certain people living in, 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 home, in homelands or Bantu stands are foreigners, so their, their movement can be restricted. So it's not any kind of discrimination, they would say. Um, no one believed that. The only country that accepted some kind of form of recognition of this, the, the South African Bantu stands, was naturally Israel. And it's, it's, it's natural because Israel would have, would have the, the world believe the same thing, that, um, that, South, that, that Palestinians in the West Bank have some kind of autonomy, and therefore when Israel restricts their movement, it's any different from the, the past laws in South Africa. Or when Israel uh, maintains a siege around Gaza, it's anything other than what it is, a siege of captive population under the Israel under Israeli control. Um, I think th- those are the realities and the distinctions between the West Bank and, and what's called Israel proper and the Gaza Strip are, um, uh, at the end of the day, formalities. I mean, the situations for Gazans are, are far worse, but um, it's, it's important for us to realize that all of this is under Israeli control and therefore the responsibility of, of Israel. And, you know, you were describing activist work you were doing with this Bedouin village in the Negev. Uh, so are these kind of solidarity efforts ongoing? Uh, yeah. And how has the atmosphere on which you're working changed? Yeah, there, there, um, there's solidarity work that happens in the Negev in the south, um, very similar to what happens in the West Bank. You know, people would come out to support an entire, entire villages that are under threat. Um, and... The, the 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 politics in Israel is, is a very strong and consistent shift to the right. Um, as we speak, um, the the anti-Semitic uh, president, or the, uh, I think he's the president of Hungary, Orbán. Correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, it, he he's um, uh, just landed in the country and is being received by the prime minister. Um, the one country in the world where uh, Donald Trump is most popular is Israel. The American Jewish population is is is, is terrified of this guy. After um, uh, you know, after Charlottesville, this doesn't affect his popularity in Israel. They just mention, you know, they say, okay, so he has anti-Semites in his cabinet. He's probably one, two, but in, in, you know. Uh, Israel is so far to the right that they'll have no problem with uh, 
uh, with endorsing Trump. Uh, when they opened the American embassy in Jerusalem, it wasn't it wasn't enough to have one anti-Semitic pastor uh, speak. They had to bring two. Um, one of them is John Hagee, who once you know spoke favorably about about Hitler. No one you know no one um, no one protests that. It doesn't seem to to to, to be any kind of problem uh, to invite such a guy to a public ceremony in Israel. Hmm. And you know after we talked. I went back and looked at the data, and yeah, and you're right that uh, something like almost 70% of American Jewish voters voted against Trump. Yeah. Um, but there was some data that the more religious that people were, and uh, you know, it depends on how that's measured, the more likely they were to support Trump to uh-huh. the point where the more religious people at some point were uh, were majority supported Trump. And it wasn't great data on this, but I wondered if it was the people who were most invested in the Zionist project that were the most Trump supporters. Um, but why do you think it is that, that uh, the Trump finds so much support in Israel, despite uh, evidence of anti-Semitism in his administration? I think that it's an indication of how far to the right uh, Israeli politics has uh, gone. That, that, that people, lots, too many people in Israel feel that they can relate politically to someone like a Trump. And even the anti-Semitism doesn't seem to bother them. That, you know, you would think that someone it's enough you know it's enough that you know if, if this was a democrat it's enough that they would have employed someone who was anti-semitic but it, these are you know these are his his, his, his main advisors steve bannon yeah and uh that doesn't seem to disqualify him because the the the, the right wing the the uh the uh, the hatred of of uh of, of immigrants the uh, the hatred of, of, of liberals that's 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 more important to in Israeli politics than uh, even anti-Semitism. Yeah, and you know my analysis on this I, uh, seems to me that there, the common ground is white supremacy, and that yeah. uh, you know what Israel is doing in Gaza and the West Bank and the Negev is completely consistent with Bannon's uh, you know idea of of you know, white supremacy in Europe and, and the United States. And, and, and South Africa. Um, I forget the, the exact title, but the, 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 the writer is Polakov. Right? I think it's something like Secret Alliance or, or, or something like that about uh, the history, long history of, of, of Israeli and South African cooperation. And part of it was a shared ideology of, of white supremacy. And I, I, they both saw themselves in, in the same terms of, of a, a group of, of Privileged people who uh, have the right to uh, control, you know, others. Well, I'm afraid I'm going to have to wrap up pretty soon. But is there anything else that uh, about the solidarity work or about what's going on in the Holy Land that you want to make sure we don't miss before we wrap up? Um, I'd say pay attention to those demolitions uh, in Khan al It's going on right now. That there's still a chance to save it with enough resistance and there are american groups working on this jewish voices for peace is an excellent group the u.s campaign for palestinian rights um they're uh, doing great work um if if uh, people uh, can i uh, encourage everybody to join them they're, they're on top of stuff and uh the, the work that happens in the united states is very important maybe more important than anything wow and uh you know i remember when we were at university of maryland we had a mutual friend from ramallah uh is she still there are you guys still in touch i uh, i hear from her sometimes she's 
uh, she's a prophet, Birzet. Um, uh, it's you know, it, it, geographically it's not that far, but it, it's still a bit of a world away. So I, unfortunately, I don't see her that much. Wow. Um, and whenever I interview someone, I like to ask for a cultural recommendation, a book, an album, a movie, a performance, uh, a work of art that you want to share with me and my audience that we might not uh, be exposed to otherwise. Um, it doesn't have very much to do with Palestine, but... Um, That's fine. I, I, I've just been reading uh, Andrew O'Hagan, um, a couple of articles, uh, long articles in, in the in the London, London Review of Books about uh, about uh, the Grenfell Tower and one about uh, WikiLeaks. And then he put them together. The book is called something like um, Secret Lives or something like like that. But, uh, but most of it is, is available free on the London Review of Books. Um, I, I'm really enjoying that. Andrew O'Hagan. All right, well, thanks a lot, Thank Kobe, you. for making the time to talk to us uh, half a world away. Uh, and I look forward to seeing you. Let us know next time you're... Uh, you're in the U.S. Definitely. I look forward to that, too. All right. Take care. at the border to the relative safety of Spain He's come from Algeria westbound to Suda test his fate on the sea The crowded boats ride in the heavy waves The land fades behind finally Growing up poor from the Civil War Omar's seen hardship and pain In songs and in pages And prices and wages A colonial memory remains And up north they ask What they're running from And somehow they still fail to see Big money flows through the global casino and sends people far from their homes to shanties in Calais and stadiums in Qatar to warehouses, factories and farms be mistreated and cheated while the facts of their lives are ignored they gather beneath football banners and boast of the pride in their veins their perspectives distorted their history perverted they cling to machismo and hate and it looks like the past came right back and started all over again In Sweden and Italy, in Greece and in Germany, in France and in England, you'll find 
slogans and rallies that tell the sad story of the right wing again on the rise and it looks like the past came right back and started all over cities to organize and educate and what about you what will you do you can't be neutral on a moving train wow thanks so much for joining us and uh, because of some technical difficulties and other obligations had to put this episode together in about 90 minutes total of uh, recording and editing so uh, please forgive any uh, little audio artifacts. And uh, if you like the show, uh, feel free to reach out to me. My podcast, again, is called Knife at the Gunfight. You can find us on Facebook. Uh, I have an Instagram that I don't use it that much. I'm also on Twitter at, at SlyFitz, S-L-Y-F-I-T-Z. And uh, you can find Knife at the Gunfight wherever you get yours. Uh, the music that you heard today was, uh, again, from Baltimore, uh, a good friend of mine and a co-founder of the record label Firebrand Records, Ryan Harvey, along with Shireen Lilith and the uh, British-Palestinian Kareem Samara, and a couple of tracks off of their recent release, Thin Blue Border. Uh, he's a very interesting guy, and we'll have to get him on the, on the show at some point soon. Uh, the last thing I wanted to talk about and remind people that up in Baltimore, we're going, we're going to be having our uh, first anniversary Baltimore ceasefire weekend, August 3rd through the 5th, and that's a deliberate effort by Baltimoreans for Baltimoreans to end violence and murder in the city and to celebrate life. And one way we'll be celebrating life is with a concert on August 4th at Club Charm in Baltimore City at 7 p.m. Uh, you can look that up on BaltimoreCeasefire.com. They're going to have a calendar of events up there, and I'll also post the poster for that show on all of my social media. And one of the performers who will be there includes E.Z. Jackson, who is really an amazing uh, performer, but also journalist for The Real News, uh, based out of the Baltimore Bureau. Uh, and so I'm going to close out uh, with one of his songs called Unapologetically Black. Again, thanks so much for joining us. Hope to see you again next time. Unapologetically black. Yeah. Unapologetically black. Mm. Yeah. Unapologetically black. Start off shotgun, handle the pump.
up like them white boys who voted for Donald Trump. The imagery you give of me and mine ain't fact, though. Everything I ever knew to be the greatest was black, ho. From Malcolm to Satchmo, from the city to back roads. My people make cuisine when they threw us them scraps, though. Put me in schools with old books and no heat inside. My black teachers had us memorized and still I rise in the black national anthem. Young, black, and handsome. The best way to describe Miss Catherine, grandson. Descendant of a beautiful hue that you can't bleach. Speak the language of them naughty hit boys that you can't reach. You lame if you think you're killing my spirit, my illadiligence. Shame that you just can't see it, blinded by privilege. Fist raised, head high, I'm ready for attack. The sleeping giant is woke and he is unapologetically black. Yeah. Mm. Unapologetically black. Trying to do my best to get it right though. I'm getting nervous when them blue and red lights go. Knowing that the stop could be the ending of my night floor. Maybe this is stop that'll end my life, yo. Is he just an officer or a hate-filled psycho? I don't know, so I got my hands on the wheel. No schoolboy and ASAP. They hated on my skin since way back. I hate that. You hate facts, so you watch Fox News. The police, the real mafia, the money hide clues. I'm confused why you call me American. You focus your attention on the places I've never been. I grew up in war zones, torn homes. Black and Hispanic, I found peace in the Mars. But the world made me a manic, satanic images. Playing in the inconspicuous places. White faces, I don't know Tell me really what it is, homie. Real in my DNA, I'm allergic to phony. Jealousy of brown skin made them raw break me sodomize. I might intimidate you, but I will not apologize, motherfucker. Yeah, unapologetically black. Mm, yeah, I'm unapologetically black. 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 Black.